Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Scott Witzke. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers to get to know the stories behind their work. Today, we're talking to Ray E. Boomauer. Ray is currently Interim Senior Director of the Indiana Historical Society Press, where he also serves as editor of the quarterly popular history magazine, Traces of Indiana and Midwestern History. Boomauer graduated from Indiana University with a degree in journalism and political science, and he received his master's degree from Indiana University as well in U.S. history. He's worked in public relations at the Indiana State Museum and as a reporter for the Rensselaer Republican and the Anderson Herald. He's also the author of The Sword and the Pen, A Life of Lou Wallace. He's also published biographies of other notable Hoosiers, including Ernie Pyle, Gus Grissom, May Wright Sewell. Boomauer has received the Hoosier Historian Award from the Indiana Historical Society and was the winner of the Regional Author Award in the annual Eugene and Marilyn Glick Indiana Authors Awards. Ray, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Scott. I know that Lou Wallace is this fascinating person that the more I learn about him, the more I uh, I'm just impressed by the things he has done. He's one of the most colorful and important figures in Indiana history. And yet, when you ask people who was Lou Wallace, they respond, Lou who? If you were to look at Lou Wallace's resume, what are some of the things that you might put on the things of why he's a significant Hoosier? I like to refer to Lou Wallace as the quintessential 19th century man. He's kind of Indiana's uh, renaissance man as well because he did a number of things in his lifetime and did them all well and with uh, panache. Uh, he was, of course, a, a lawyer, uh, a writer, uh, a Civil War general, uh, a diplomat. And in all of these uh, careers that he had, he had an overwhelming self-confidence that sometimes came back to uh, affect him negatively in, in these uh, endeavors. Uh, but he had supreme self-confidence in himself, and it stood him in good stead uh, throughout his life. He made a lot of major contributions and was on the scene during some of the great aspects of American history and contributed to that history. In your writing of your biography of Lew Wallace, who was your intended audience? Well, The Sword and the Pan, A Life of Lou Wallace, was part of the Indiana Historical Society's uh, youth biography series. In fact, it was the first book in that series. It's now up to 11 volumes. And in that series, what we try to do is to reach a, a younger audience of middle school to high school age uh, to get Indiana history and stories about notable Hoosiers in their hands. And so to do that, uh, they're geared toward that age group as far as the writing style is, uh, more like a newspaper style, uh, shorter period paragraphs, punchier writing, and they're also very well illustrated. And uh, that's, uh, we found that uh, people of all ages, though, really like these books because they're short, sweet, to the point about a person's career. They're not like uh, what I call doorstopper biographies, a thousand pagers that you could use as doorstops, but gives you all the critical information you need about a particular figure of our state's past. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating book. It is a very easy read, but it's so informative. The pictures make it such so interesting. Right. So when was Lou Wallace born and uh, what was his family life like? He was born in 1827 in uh, Brookville, Indiana. Uh, his family life uh, was a, a bit confusing uh, at times. 
his father, David Wallace, uh, was a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, taught mathematics there for a while, but decided not to make it his career, came back to Brookville, uh, studied law, and became a, a lawyer, opened a practice there. Uh, Lou was the second of four sons uh, born uh, to uh, Esther and uh, David Wallace. And uh, David decided to strike out and become partners in business with his brother in uh, Covington, which was right across the state on the western border of uh, near Illinois. And on the way there, uh, traveling by uh, carriage, horse and carriage, uh, Lou and his brother uh, suffered from scarlet fever. And although Lou survived, his uh, uh, brother John died on that journey. And in Covington, Lou really became one with the outdoors. He was kind of a, an early version of a Tom Sawyer. Uh, loved playing in the woods, hunting with his dog, fishing on the Wabash River, which kind of became his front yard, and did not particularly like going to school and being stuck inside a, a classroom, which really upset his uh, mother and his father, who both really thought education was the key to a, a good life down the road. But uh, Lou was kind of an incorrigible uh, young man and uh, uh, resisted their efforts to uh, better himself uh, through the schoolroom. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned his father was a lawyer, but he had another uh, professor that he might be more well-known for. Very involved, of course. Uh, the law and politics in Indiana seemed to go together, and uh, uh, Lou's father was uh, also very involved in politics, served in the state legislature, uh, lieutenant governor for a couple of turns, and eventually uh, became uh, governor uh, of the state at a time when Indiana was undergoing a, a lot of changes. The canal movement was underway, uh, improved transportation was uh, the key. Uh, there was a big mammoth internal improvements act uh, undertaken uh, by the state government. Unfortunately, there was a financial panic uh, and it really ruined all the plans that uh, the state had at that time. And unfortunately, uh, uh, David Wallace kind of was a victim of that, uh, forces outside of his control. But uh, I think that inspired Lou to uh, later on in his own life become interested in the law and politics as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we think of Indiana today, uh, it's probably very different than it was in the 1830s. I know you were talking about um, him being distracted from school, and I was talking with the executive director at the Lou Wallace Museum, and he called him an alternative learner. Very <laughs> much so. He was very much an alternative uh, learner. He was kind of like a, a Horatio Alger character come to life. Uh, he was self-taught. Uh, he did have quite an influential teacher when his father sent him for a year to a school in Centerville, Indiana, a, a professor, Samuel K. Hauschauer, mm-hmm. who was uh, very influential, even got Lou to learn mathematics, which no one had been able to do before. But he recognized that the young Lou had a, a writing ability. Uh, Lou loved to read, and that's one of the ways that his mother was able to keep him in some control. She would give him books on uh, the exploits of the great Scottish uh, William Wallace and Robert the Bruce, and those exciting adventure tales really inspired him, I think, gave him his romantic notion of what uh, battle might be like. And uh, so this uh, Samuel K. Hauschauer really uh, saw that uh, Lou had an ability uh, with the written word and encouraged him in that 
I think that's what led him on later on to his own writing career. And there's uh, one little lesson that uh, the professor gave him that he kept throughout his life, and that uh, you know everything in writing should be geared toward clearness of expression, everything. And that's what Lou tried to do in his own writing. So he said he was uh, a lawyer. You mentioned that Lou himself was a lawyer. Um, he w- did a lot of reading and writing, and his dad went to West Point. Uh, we know that Lou was a soldier. Did he, was he inspired as a kid to want to follow in his father's footsteps? He was very inspired by his uh, father's uh, uh, time at West Point. When he was in Covington, uh, there was a uh, great uh, to-do about a potential Indian uprising. Uh, the Black Hawk War was is known as. And so David Wallace, with his uh, you know, career at West Point, was given command of a kind of a ragtag local uh, militia. But he was on horseback trying to inspire uh, these troops. And, and Lou remembered seeing that, uh, remembered seeing his father's old uniform hanging in their home with its bullet uh, buttons and uh, that really inspired him, um, I think, a, a love of soldiering. So he read all he could uh, about it. Did not go to West Point, did not follow in his father's uh, footsteps, uh, but really was very inspired by his uh, father's time uh, at the academy. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the significant experiences that Lou had in the early portion of his military career? Well, Lou was uh, a wayward youth, as I said, and his father at the age of eight, 16, finally had enough uh, with his young son, called him into his office and, you know, piled all the bills he had in his, in his desk for his schooling. He said, you know, I've considered this money wasted. You know, I've done all I can. You're on your own. So we kind of threw Lou out into the world, and this was not really something that uh, Lou was uh, surprised by. And, in fact, he was very grateful to his father to kind of give him that uh, kick, that uh, encouragement that he needed to go out and earn his own way. He found the job at the American County Clerk's Office in Indianapolis copying records and earned a living that way and uh, was uh, very involved uh, in uh, organizing a, a young group of uh, people who were also interested in military matters into a kind of little uh, militia called uh, the Marion Rifles. There was another older band uh, out already organized that kind of looked down on Lou and this uh, young group he had organized, uh, but they uh, kind of routed them during this one reenactment of, a, I think it was a, either 1812 or American Revolution battle, and um, really uh, got a lot of attention through that, and read all he could about uh, military matters. Uh, read a book by uh, uh, Winfield uh, Scott, uh, one of the uh, great American generals, and about military tactics. And so he was well versed in the military arts, more so than a lot of people were during that time. Without a uh, career at, at West Point. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about Wallace's service. I know at Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. Fort Donelson. Right. He, of course, when the Civil War broke out, uh, was uh, called by an old friend of his, uh, Oliver P. Morton, who was governor at that time, uh, to come to Indianapolis and raise the required amount of regiments called for by President Abraham Lincoln. And so Wallace served as adjutant general and agreed to be in that post if Morton would give him command of his own regiment. And so Morton agreed to that. Uh, Wallace was very enthusiastic, uh, very well organized, and got together uh, twice the number of required regiments for uh, Indiana's uh, quota uh, for Abraham Lincoln. And so was given command of 11th Indiana Volunteer Infantry Regiment. And uh, early on in the war, they were sent out uh, east near Harper's Ferry 
in Maryland near the border of Virginia. And there's a small town there called Romney, Virginia. And uh, Lou and the 11th Indiana were there to guard a vital railroad line. But he heard that there were uh, a small number of troops of Confederate rebels in Romney. And he organized uh, a raid uh, on Romney and quickly routed the rebels from their position. And this was, you know, not a major victory on the battlefield. But early on in the war, there were not a lot of Union victories to celebrate. And so even President Lincoln was impressed uh, by this uh, young colonel from Indiana and called it the splendid raid on Rodney. Uh, There were um, a lot of uh, artists who came to draw and uh, sketch Lou and his officers from the 11th Indiana, and they were featured in newspapers and magazines across the country. So he won some early fame early on in the war and continued to rise in the ranks, served under General Ulysses S. Grant in his campaigns in uh, Tennessee against Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. And Lou played a very major role in helping ensure that the battle to capture Fort Henry uh, was won. Uh, He was in command of the um, kind of the the middle part of the battle. And when it looked like uh, there were going to be a Confederate breakthrough on the right, supply troops steadied the line and really made sure that uh, Fort Henry was finally captured uh, by the Union forces. So Early on, everything seemed to be coming up roses for this uh, young uh, military uh, Hoosier. I know he has that great quote that, um, uh, I never heard music as fascinating and grand as that of battle. That's right. obviously something when you're going well, it's a grand and wonderful piece of music. A little bit of popular popular reference for people who follow so- sports and soccer. I know the 11th Indiana, uh, the soccer team in Indian- Indianapolis is named after the Indy 11. That's right. You know, 11th Indiana is uh, famous in Civil War history, uh, a Zouave regiment. It was, they were more, uh, they didn't, people seem to think, when they think of the Civil War, of soldiers, you know, standing up in a long line, firing uh, their, their rifles at, at the enemy. But the Zouave regiment was uh, kind of trained in uh, commando-style tactics, you know, looking for cover, firing from behind cover, crawling around the ground. Uh, not answering to uh, shouts of orders, but bugle calls over the din of battle. And so there was a very dashing regiment that got a a lot of attention from the press, and uh, Lou Wallace got a lot of attention himself. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Scott Witzke, and our guest today is Lou Wallace scholar and Indiana historian Ray Boomauer. So we were talking about the success that Lew Wallace had in the battlefield. Did he get any praise or any promotions from that? Yes, he did. A promotion came quickly uh, for the young colonel. Uh, He, at the age of 34, uh, all the way to the rank of major general in the Union Army and was the youngest person uh, to achieve uh, that rank. And it looked like he had finally achieved his goal, which was, he said early on in his life, uh, my noblest dream of life has been one of fame. And it seems like he had won the fame on the battlefield. And he wrote back to his wife, Susan, who was always a very important person in his life. And there's a lot of letters back and forth from Lou to Susan during the war that uh, he found out that on the battlefield and when everything was going on, all this commotion, uh, that he could think and could keep a cool head. And uh, that what uh, was led him to his uh, eventual uh, rank of major general. For that alternative learner that mm-hmm. put into a different uh, context, you're able to think more clearly. I think people who suffer from ADD or other things can really learn some lessons from him. So what was his next battle that he went into? 
Unfortunately, the next battle he went into was Shiloh, which uh, played a, a major role uh, on Lou's, wife, Lou's life uh, throughout uh, the rest of his uh, career. Uh, Shiloh was one of the bloodiest battles up to that point in the Civil War. Uh, Grant and his forces were encamped along the uh, Tennessee River, thinking that they were uh, it'd be an easy path to capture uh, Corinth, Mississippi. And unbeknownst to them, there were 40,000 Confederate troops under uh, General uh, Albert uh, Johnston uh, ready to spring on their camp. And they were totally unaware uh, that this force was there and ready to spring the surprise on them. And so when the Confederates struck, there was a great confusion uh, on the Union side. And Lew and his troops, uh, the 3rd Division, about 6,000 men, uh, were stationed behind the lines. And there's this... Um, great still controversy over what really happened that day uh, at Shiloh. Uh, Grant came up the river, uh, sent orders, written orders uh, through one of his aides uh, to Wallace. And there's, you know, Wallace says one thing, Grant and his uh, officers say another thing. Uh, They wanted uh, supposedly Wallace to take the road nearer the river to get quicker to the battlefield. Wallace, before all this had happened, had really uh, made preparations on a road called the Shunpike Road and improved it and made sure that he could get to the battle to the right of the Union line uh, quicker and easier uh, than he would have without those improvements. And uh, Wallace had thought that when Grant gave his orders, he wanted him to go on that road. It was not the road Grant had thought he had ordered him to. And so Wallace was not able to get to the battle as quickly as Grant wanted. And he only got there near the end of the day uh, when that first uh, day of battle was, uh, was over. Uh, he did, and his troops did do a great job the next morning on pushing the Confederates back and uh, winning back uh, what they had lost uh, the day before. But this came at a terrible price for both the uh, Union and uh, rebel soldiers. In fact, on that one day, there were more casualties than all of the previous wars that uh, America had been involved with. So this was a a great controversy and needed to blame someone for that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for Wallace, uh, he was the one that was the scapegoat for that Union near disaster at Shiloh. Do you think there are any reasons why he was chosen as this scapegoat? Uh, Why why was he... Well, if you ask Wallace troops, they're quick to say that it was jealousy on the part of regular army officers. There's always this schism in the Civil War between officers trained at West Point, part of the regular army, and uh, volunteer officers who may have been appointed not for their particular skills on the battlefield, but because of their political connections. Uh, especially uh, former Democrats who still supported the Union cause, which were vital uh, to Lincoln in keeping the Union together. And uh, generals who went to West Point, like Henry Halleck, a very, uh, who played a key role in the Civil War in Washington, D.C., uh, said it was you know, almost murder to give commands uh, on the field to men like Wallace, who he thought was giving uh, command because of his political connections. Mm-hmm. If you look at uh, what were known as political officers during the Civil War, Wallace had uh, quite a bit of training, uh, more so than any of those other ones did. You know, he's well-versed in military arts, had served in the Mexican War, had not really been in battle, uh, but had seen what war was like. 
and uh, was well-versed in the military arts and I think unfairly blamed because he wasn't one of those West Pointers, had not been trained at West mm-hmm. Point. And so it was easy to blame him for what happened at Shiloh. So it would be easy also to say that General Halleck did not like Lew Wallace. He was <laughs> They did not like each other at all, no. Uh, There's this uh, funny story. Uh, after Wallace had kind of been put on the shelf uh, for his supposed failure uh, at Shiloh. And uh, there was, you know, back and forth about what to do with, with Wallace and his military career. And uh, uh, Wallace had his supporters, you know, try to get the ear of uh, President Lincoln. Halleck made sure that he had his opinion uh, to Lincoln about what Wallace was like and uh, he shouldn't be given another command. And uh, Wallace was complaining, I mean, Lincoln was complaining to a visitor uh, one day about this, you know, Henry Lane, who was a U.S. senator from Indiana, wants me to kick, you know, Halleck out and put Wallace back in. Halleck wants to, you know, kick Wallace out. What am I supposed to do? And, well, the the visitor said, I've got something to please both of them, kick both of them out. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Do you think Wallace was ever vindicated for these uh, things that happened to Shiloh? Shiloh and its slanders, as he called them, uh, plagued him throughout uh, the rest of his life. I think most military experts and Civil War historians realize now that Wallace did not panic. He uh, did not. There was really confusion about what the orders really were. Uh, And so he's really not blamed for what happened at Shiloh. Even if he'd gotten there, I think, earlier, it wouldn't have made a difference. They'd still have to wait for reinforcements from Don Carlos Buell's uh, forces to win the day the next day. Uh, However, at the end of his life, in uh, a footnote in his memoirs, General Grant, who kind of also blamed Wallace, uh, finally gotten a a letter from another general who was killed on the battlefield, a Union general also named Wallace, W.H.L. Wallace. And his uh, wife had found this letter uh, from Lew Wallace saying that, you know, I'm going to improve this road so easier back and forth in case reinforcements are needed. And that letter, once Grant saw it, he realized that, uh, you know, Lew Wallace was telling the truth all, all these years. He really thought that he was supposed to go on that one road. And uh, so uh, in a footnote in his famous memoirs, Grant finally vindicates uh, Wallace. Um, but it, it still gnawed uh, at Lou in, until his dying day, those slanders uh, of, of Shiloh. He said, if I, if I were guilty, I, you know, it wouldn't weigh on me so much. But because I'm innocent, it really weighs on my mind. So he he stayed a general, or what happened to him after Shiloh? After Shiloh, who's kind of put on the shelf uh, for a time, Confederate forces uh, at one point were threatening to overtake Cincinnati, Ohio, a key a Union a town a community. And so Wallace was sent to kind of rally the citizens there to prepare defenses, did a great job of that, really forestalled a Confederate uh, takeover of the city. Uh, Henry Heath, who was one of the uh, rebel commanders, had said that uh, he probably wouldn't have stayed in Cincinnati, but might have, you know, uh, had asked for ransom or, you know, and really uh, played havoc uh, with the community if he'd been able to invade. But he was uh, put off by these massive defenses uh, that Wallace had erected and uh, forestalled any attack on uh, Cincinnati. 
Uh, later on, uh, in 1864, uh, Lincoln relented and gave Wallace command of the Middle Department, which is uh, most of Maryland and Delaware uh, mm-hmm. on the East Coast. Of course, uh, Maryland, a border state, very key state uh, in, in the Union cause. And that's where he really made um, his grandest stand uh, mm-hmm. at the Battle of Monocacy. Um, Confederate force under Jubal Early uh, was uh, uh, sent by Robert E. Lee on an invasion of the Shenandoah Valley, really to try to uh, relieve pressure that Grant was putting on uh, him at outside of Richmond, Virginia, the Confederate capital. Uh, there's a controversy over did Lee really want him to try to go for Washington, D.C. or not, or just kind of raise some havoc and relieve the pressure on him. But once Early made it through the Shenandoah Valley, defeated two Union generals in the process, the way seemed open to Washington, D.C. And an attack there uh, where it was not a lot of troops defending Washington at that time. And Wallace recognized what was going on and made a valiant stand uh, at the Battle of Monocacy. Lasted more than six hours most of the day. Uh, repulsed a number of Confederate charges. Eventually, uh, the numbers told he had to retreat. Uh, but uh, later on, it finally was realized that, you know, by his stand, by delaying early for that one full day, uh, reinforcements were able to get to Washington, D.C., and early was uh, uh, not able to get into Washington's front door and, and to uh, play havoc uh, with uh, the Union Capitol. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate outcome of the battle is he had lost the battle, but he had saved Washington, D.C., kind of, so to speak. It's kind of ironic, yeah, <laughs> that Wallace had been looking for this grand victory to vindicate his career. And through a, a loss, uh, it was shown that uh, he was really a, a, you know, a good general mm-hmm. and that uh, he had gained more from a loss than many generals had gained from a victory in their career. And initially, it was not seen that way. In fact, there's this very... Um, plaintive telegram in the Lou Wallace papers at the Indiana Historical Society where Wallace had been relieved of his command for a time by General Ord. And he telegrams back saying, you know, do I report to Ord? Does he report to me? You know, you know what am I to do? Which is very uh, plaintive uh, from Wallace. Uh, but eventually everyone realized, and Secretary of War Stanton, President Lincoln realized uh, the achievement he had done in staving off this attack for that one full day. So at the end of Monocacy, um, what else, What then happened to Lou? Where did he go? He went back to command uh, of the Middle Department mm-hmm. and eventually near the end of the war uh, was uh, sent on a mission to Mexico uh, with uh, President Lincoln's approval mm-hmm. uh, to see, to try to get uh, Confederate troops, stop them from not surrendering and going into Mexico and continuing the war from there. There's also a, kind of a revolution. The uh, elected government, uh, Benito Juarez, had been supplanted by uh, Maximilian who, uh, you know, from uh, France, mm-hmm. and there was a battle going on there. And uh, so Lou tried to support uh, the Republican forces to uh, take back uh, the government that they had been overthrown. And um, that's where he was. Uh, when the war ended. Yeah, so in April 9th of 1865, the day that the surrender came through, he was in Mexico. But then five days later, something special happened. That's right. Of course, (laughs) uh, President Lincoln was uh, assassinated, and um, the conspirators behind it uh, were captured. Of course, Booth was killed, uh, but there were others involved in the conspiracy. Uh, There were attacks on other government officials, planned attacks that didn't go off. Uh, these uh, conspirators are rounded up 
and tried at a military uh, court. And Wallace was one of the uh, generals to serve uh, on that panel, really the only, I think, lawyer, trained lawyer uh, to uh, be on the panel. And the testimony went on for days, and although it was very uh, controversial, uh, still today about, you know, this is really, was evidence cooked up Mm -hmm. to convict these people, uh, but they were all convicted. And uh, Wallace later said on that he was um, convinced that they did the right thing. sitting on one of these major events of the 19th century, but then there was also another conspiracy or a commission that he was on for um, Andersonville POW camp. Andersonville was a very notorious uh, prison camp uh, where Confederates held Union uh, forces. Uh, Terrible uh, conditions there, uh, bad food, uh, bad water, uh, uh, guards that uh, would shoot anyone trying to cross what was called the deadline. There was a creek Mm -hmm. nearby, and uh, Wallace did this very uh, evocative uh, drawing of a Union soldier who was killed with a cup in his hand trying to get some water outside the deadline uh, during uh, the trial. He was so inspired by this one incident that he put it in his uh, pen on paper. Uh, but um, you know, Henry Wirtz, the commandant uh, of Andersonville, was uh, put on trial and used the defense that uh, echoes down through the ages. You know, you know, he was just following orders, but that did not fly then as it did not during the, the Nuremberg trials as well, and he was convicted and hanged. It's amazing how these things echo. We think about uh, popular events that they hadn't happened before, but here's Andersonville just like uh, right. the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, you talked about him drawing uh, that picture. I know that during the conspirator trial, he also did a lot of drawings. Early on as a young man, uh, Wallace thought he might uh, become a, a painter himself. Uh, Jacob Cox, who was a very uh, early uh, pioneer painter uh, from Indiana, kind of inspired uh, the young Wallace. Uh, But his father, David, uh, kind of put the kibosh on that, saying you can't earn a living as an artist. Uh, You know, maybe Jacob Cox can, but you can't. But it's something he uh, kept up uh, through the rest of his life and uh, drew very uh, striking uh, portraits of all the uh, conspirators on trial and the Lincoln assassination plot. Uh, and uh, continued to draw. Uh, very interested in the arts. He played the violin. He and his wife uh, played. His wife played guitar. He played violin, and uh, so he was uh, very interested uh, in the arts early on in his life. That was interesting. Up at the Lou Wallace Museum, he didn't just want to play the violin. He had to learn. You, maybe you can tell the story of, of he went beyond just learning the violin. I know he built his own violin. Right. I mean, That's right. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. You can't. You don't just want to learn it. You right. want to understand it completely. And I think that tells you the character of mm-hmm. Lou Wallace. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Scott Witzke, and our guest today is Lou Wallace scholar and Indiana historian Ray Boomauer. We'll be back after a short break.
So we're talking about him as a general, but Lew Wallace is probably better known as an author. That's where you talked about wanting to become famous. He became ultimately famous as an author. Through his writing, that's right. Ben-Hur wasn't his first book. He had written an earlier book. Can you tell me a little bit about his first foray into writing? Early on in his uh, career uh, as a clerk in the uh, Marion County a clerk's office, uh, Wallace found at the end of the day that uh, books couldn't give him relief from doing all this uh, tedious uh, work in the office and he needs something else, and uh, turned uh, to writing and uh, was inspired by a book he read on uh, the um, history of the uh, Spanish conquistadors uh, against the Aztec Empire in, in Mexico. And uh, that really set him off to uh, kind of write a historical fictional account uh, of that uh, historic uh, event. And he worked on this book for 30 years, uh, going to it back and forth from his other uh, endeavors. Wallace had the ability, uh, which is key, I think, in any writer, is he could leave off, go away, come back, and take off right from where he had uh, ended. He had that uh, great ability that any writer needs. And so he's able to do that. And finally, in 1873, The Fair God uh, was uh, published. Uh, it met with modest success. Uh, most of the uh, critics uh, were unfavorable toward the book because historical fiction had been come passe at that time. It got great reviews in England, uh, which uh, really was impressed by Wallace's historical accuracy. He did a lot of research. Uh, for this book, uh, read a lot about uh, the event and the history of that time period. Uh, it almost ruined his law practice. <laughs> uh, Lou and the law never went together very well. He uh, later on called it uh, that most detestable of occupations. He didn't. He said the law worried me, and I worried the law. But it at that time, you know, reading novels was not something that men's men did. It was something that women did. And there were some ministers uh, who thought of it as sinful you know, to read that. You should just you know, read the Bible instead. So when Wallace's book, The Fair God, came out, it almost ruined his law practice because whenever he was in a court case, the opposing counsel would bring up, well, what does this guy know? You know he wrote a book, and uh, all the farmers and merchantmen on the jury would laugh. And it, he's, Wallace said it almost ruined his, uh, his career. I know he says he might as well have gone into court dressed like a circus clown. That's right. It was, it's exactly. just, we know that he wrote Ben-Hur. What influenced him to write such a great novel? Well, in... Um, the 1870s, he had done research for what he thought would be a magazine article about the story of, of the wise men. And he had uh, researched it and did uh, research at the Library of Congress on, on the East Coast and libraries. Uh, came back home and kind of put it aside for a while. And in uh, 1876, he was on his way to a, a union, uh, kind of reunion in Indianapolis and taking the train from Crawfordsville to Indianapolis and uh, happened upon a fellow union veteran, uh, Robert Ingersoll, who was a very well-known uh, religious skeptic, mm -hmm. agnostic, mm -hmm. uh, a great orator, uh, loved to go into communities and uh, talk about his beliefs. And uh, people, even those who opposed him, loved going to hear him talk as such a spellbounding preacher. Uh, preacher, if you call him that. Mm -hmm. He's not yes. really a preacher. <laughs> but on the train, uh, they got into a discussion about religion, God, uh, Jesus Christ. And Wallace had not been, you know, very firm in his religious beliefs, but not a member of any 
uh, one church and didn't really know what he thought about it. But this got him to thinking, and he decided, you know, to do more research on this. And that's kind of the germ, the idea behind Ben-Hur. There are others who say that uh, that character came to him even before that. Uh, but he wanted to write about Christ's life. You know, he had this uh, magazine article already about the wise men coming uh, to you know, give the gifts at Jesus' birth. He thought to end the book at the crucifixion. But in between, you know, how do you get to tell this story? You know, he didn't think that ministers and religious leaders at that time would take to someone writing about Christ himself in a fictional context. So he came up with this Jewish kind of young prince, uh, Ben-Hur, and told the story of Christ through what uh, Ben-Hur went through uh, and his journey, you know, against the Roman occupiers and his uh, best friend, uh, Masala, who later, you know, betrays him. And, uh, and his journey from betrayal to revenge to compassion at the end. And so uh, he finally finished this book when he was governor of the New Mexico Territory. After the end of a long day dealing with all the problems involved in being a territorial governor, including Billy the Kid and yeah. many others, uh, he would retire to the small office and continue to work on his book. And finally in 1880, finished it. Harper and Brothers uh, agreed to publish it, and it was uh, published that year in 1880. Sales were mixed at first, uh, but this is one of those books that word of mouth more than critical reviews inspired sales. Uh, people were just inspired by this tale, and those who had never read a, a novel before loved it. In fact, uh, Wallace sent one of these books to General Grant, who hadn't read a book in 10 years, but he stayed up all night. Uh, to read uh, Ben-Hur. And so it became uh, a grand commercial success uh, for Wallace uh, then and later on in life. So you say he was not particularly uh, of faith when he wrote it, but at the end of writing it, had anything changed? I think, yes, he became much more uh, a believer. Uh, I don't think he ever really, you know, picked one, you know, church to attend but uh, I think that experience in writing about uh, that uh, time period and about Christ uh, made him a, a real believer, finally, in the end. One of the things I think is inter interesting here on the Indiana University campus, we have the Lilly Library, and they have the handwritten manuscript uh, written in purple ink. Purple ink, <laughs> yes. Purple yeah, ink? It, it was, I think it was for Lent. He finished it uh, near Lent mm -hmm. and decided that— uh, uh, he would write it in purple ink, and the Harper and Brother editor said it was the most beautiful manuscript they'd ever received, and they were impressed by it. A little leery about, you know, a book with, you know, Christ as a character, but uh, he broke new ground with this book. It really got people of all ages and all sexes to finally read a novel. Even ministers, you know, on the before their congregations would tell them, you know, this is a book you need to read and broke the logjam that uh, made novels um, acceptable uh, for the general populace. Uh, so Lou was a groundbreaker in, in that respect as well. Yeah, I know that the manuscript was uh, incomplete for 80 years. There were 27 leaves of the manuscript that were missing, and they were not returned until 1960 at the dedication of the Lilly Library here in Bloomington. So uh, a great story, a local story here. So you mentioned a little earlier about uh, Billy the Kid and his time in the New Mexico Territory. Um, what was his experiences like in the Wild West? <laughs> Very wild. It was the Wild West at that time period. Uh, 
Uh, Wallace had uh, served the Republican cause well in the 1876 disputed election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden and had, uh, for his uh, work on behalf of the Republican Party, uh, Hayes uh, promoted him as the new territorial governor of uh, New Mexico, uh, went out to Santa Fe on a very rough journey, uh, of course not good roads at that time period, and uh, there was essentially a, a mini-war brewing uh, in New Mexico territory, particularly in Lincoln County, this huge uh, territory, this huge county that's uh, part of uh, New Mexico. And it was a war between businessmen, you know, trying to win influence and money. And they hired gunmen on both sides. And one of these was uh, William Bonney, Mm -hmm. who later became famous as uh, Billy the Kid. And uh, Wallace did all he could to settle tensions uh, in this war. And one of those ways was to meet uh, secretly with uh, Billy the Kid and try to kind of turn, have him turn state's evidence uh, in this murder that he had witnessed and to testify uh, against uh, the people who had killed this uh, lawyer named Chapman. And there's this very uh, famous uh, meeting between the two uh, late at night at this uh, person's home. Uh, you know, Billy comes in with a rifle in one hand and a revolver in the other and saying, you know, I'm been, you know, I was here to meet with, you know, Governor Wallace and his, you know, Governor, I, here I am, and he puts his guns away. And uh, Wallace agrees to give him a pardon in case, in, in you know, for his testimony. And um, he does so. Uh, he does testify, but later on uh, goes ahead and returns to his uh, uh, thieving uh, ways. And so, of course, Wallace does not uh, follow through on that pardon promise, in fact, put a price on, on Billy's head. And there's always this great controversy, you know, about, you know, Wallace reneged on his promise to Billy. Well, if Billy would have just, you know, followed the straight and narrow path, perhaps that pardon would have been actually made. But he returned to his uh, regular ways of, uh, you know, uh, of of thieving and finally was tracked down and killed by uh, Pat Garrett. Yeah, that's when you think of Lou Wallace in the movie, the character in movies. It's always Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, the movie, uh, or Young Guns 2. I know Lou Wallace is portrayed in there. So that was Mm -hmm. sort of his movie claim to fame as well. Earlier, you were talking about the election of Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes. I know people today are familiar with the 2000 election with the dangling chads and the really contested election. Well, here we are. Quite a way, uh, 1876, right. uh, uh, where we're dealing the same thing. Lou Wallace was down in Louisiana and Florida saying, let's see how the vote turned out. He was sent down there before the election to make sure that the uh, balloting w- was fair and was kind of aghast at seeing all the irregularities by both parties uh, to try to win uh, the uh, election. Of course, it was disputed. Uh, Tilden had more popular votes than Rutherford B. Hayes. But in the Electoral College, a lot of a few handful of southern states were still in play. And so there's this, you know, uh, great compromise between the two parties where the Democrats agreed that Hayes could win uh, enough states to win the Electoral College to be elected president. And in return, the Democrats got federal troops finally withdrawn uh, from the south. So it was a very uh, bad bargain, of course, for the African-Americans who had been allowed to vote because of the federal presence of troops in the South at that time. Uh, but Wallace was there to try to make sure the election was fair and uh, was really um, not very happy with what he had, had saw in, in the South during that election. So Lou Wallace was a Republican, and when you have uh, Rutherford B. Hayes as a Republican, when he's 
out of office, you have James Garfield come in. But James Garfield, he did not have the connection with. How did he? How did Lou lose his position? Or I think he had enough. Basically, he okay. didn't really. I think he decided. You know, I've had enough with New Mexico. He said, uh, everything that works somewhere else doesn't work here in New Mexico for some reason. Uh, these problems might be intractable. And uh, Garfield also had uh, read a copy of uh, Ben-Hur and was very impressed by the job Wallace had done. Garfield, of course, was a great reader himself, like Wallace had been, had a substantial uh, library of his own, and was so inspired by how Wallace wrote about the Holy Land that he thought, well, you know, I'll send him over there. And uh, so Wallace becomes a United States minister to the Ottoman Empire in uh, Constantinople, which is today Istanbul, <laughs> and is sent uh, overseas and uh, really hits it off uh, with the ruler, Abdul Hamad II. Sultan was a nice guy, is Sultan what you're saying. A, well, to, to Wallace, <laughs> uh, I'll say that. I'm not sure overall what kind of uh, reign the Sultan had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, uh, Wallace and the Sultan hit it off, and uh, in fact, when they first met, uh, Wallace was even able to have him shake his hand, which had never happened before. You know, here's this infidel from the West trying to shake the hand of the Sultan, but uh, the Sultan did so, and uh, they became uh, very good friends. Uh, Wallace always spoke what he thought was the truth. Uh, to the sultan, which is, I think, a little different from the courtiers, courtiers that are really surround a ruler at that time that tell him what he wants to hear. The yes-men were all yes, around. The yes-men were all around, and Wallace was not a yes-man, and so mm-hmm. they had uh, a very good relationship, and uh, Wallace was very effective in his role as U.S. minister uh, in, in what's in, today Turkey. In the Ottoman Empire. Did he ever have a chance to go to the Holy Lands? He's a little he closer to it. He finally <laughs> had a chance. You know, he had uh, time to uh, travel throughout the Holy Land, which he had researched and described so effectively in his book and found that he'd done a good job in doing so. He had uh, done enough research that uh, the uh, surroundings he talked about, the terrain, um, you know, what the villages were like. Um, he didn't really have to change anything to what he had written. Uh, he had described it very perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I know then Benjamin Harrison, uh, he was uh, interacted with Benjamin Har- or did something with the campaign as Benjamin Harrison He did. Harrison he was- wrote, of course, you know, Wallace as, as a writer was called upon to write a campaign biography for uh, Benjamin Harrison and uh, did a very good job with that. And I think that biography really was a, a key to helping um, uh, Harrison win that uh, election, at least having his name better known uh, with the public uh, because, you know, here's Wallace, this famous author, uh, writing a book about him, and people, of course, went to it and, and read it, and uh, it was very helpful as a promotional uh, part of the campaign. Mm-hmm. So after he left the Ottoman Empire, what was next on his to-do list? <laughs> he returned to uh, Crawfordsville, Indiana, uh, uh, he and his wife uh, in their home there, and uh, Wallace didn't want to go back uh, to the practice of law. And uh, financially, he didn't have to because of the uh, royalties coming in from uh, his book, Ben-Hur. Uh, wanted to uh, kind of uh, build himself a pleasure house for his soul, as he <laughs> called it. I wanted to be surrounded by a den of books and become immersed and become part of them. And so uh, he built his famous study that's still uh, around today. I always encourage people to go to Crawfordsville, uh, visit the Lou Wallace Study and Museum, you can see what one bestseller can do for a writer because this is not his home. This is just his study where he wrote to re- where he went to write and, and read. 
and uh, it's it's an impressive uh, facility. Kind of uh, the ultimate man cave, if I had to describe it. That's exactly right. (laughs) And uh, so I know also he had some silly, uh, some interesting facts of patents. He did Patented two items, I think? I think he had uh, patents uh, for a fishing rod or a reel. I'm not sure which one. Railroad, something to Mm -hmm. do with the railroad as well. So he was a a well-versed man, Uh, just as I said earlier, a renaissance man. And uh, fishing was always very important in his life. It's what he did to relax Mm -hmm. and to kind of recoup from all his uh, problems. I know they talk about going to the Kankakee Marsh and a lot of those areas. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Scott Witzke, and our guest today is Lou Wallace Scholar and Indiana historian Ray Boomauer. One of the things I wanted to talk about is are the movies. That's probably where most people are familiar uh, with Lou Wallace's influence through the 1959 movie. How did Ben Herp? I know first it came as a play. So how did Lou Wallace think about his book being put into a play format. He was against it at first mm-hmm. and uh, was uh, opposed to having it, didn't think it could be turned into a, a play production on a small stage, you know, in a theater. How, how could you do that? Uh, but these theatrical agents, Claw and Erlanger, uh, finally convinced him that they could do it. Christ would be represented not by an actor but by a 25,000 beam of light, mm-hmm. 20,000 watt or whatever, the hor- <laughs> candle, candle power beam of light. Uh, they were able to uh, put turntables uh, on the uh, stage with uh, uh, scenery uh, in the background and actual horses and ch- for the chariot race could be run on the stage. And so uh, Wallace had seen all these elaborate sets and uh, painted backdrops for this production. He said, you know, my God, how did I put all this into, into pl- <laughs> action? How did what happened? And it was very successful. Uh, it didn't meet with a lot of critical success, but the crowds loved it. Uh, it played uh, throughout the country, around the world, and it really was a, a way to promote, once again, uh, Ben-Hur uh, to the public. And uh, uh, that, of course, led uh, to uh, film productions. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, Ed Wallace had done with his novel, uh, this is really the first time, you know, theater people were not seen as... Uh, on the straight and narrow mm-hmm. back at that time period in the 19th century. And uh, Wallace and the production of Ben-Hur, you know, people on the public again encouraged their congregations to go see the play because it involved Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so that opened up uh, that uh, to the popular audience once again, as he had done with the novel. Yeah, so um, there was a... 1907 was the first version of the film. Came An unauthorized out. version. Unauthorized. So this right. is, I think, is a very important fact. Very I... important because uh, at that time, Wallace, of course, had died, 1905, but his son uh, had, uh, you know, kind of uh, been in charge of his uh, uh, legacy and had um, this uh, film was made, an authorized film that included the scene of Ben-Hur, and uh, Wallace... His son took him to court, took the uh, film company to court, mm-hmm. all the way to the Supreme Court, and uh, ruled uh, against the film company, and uh, really set the stage for uh, authors in years to come that they need to be compensated if Hollywood or film companies or TV companies wanted to uh, turn their uh, productions, you know, into uh, uh, a film or, or anything like that. Really, on the forefront of intellectual property <laughs> That's rights. Right. That's right. Really on, um, and. I know that they felt that 
the moving pictures were, uh, there's a quote, of wretched exhibitions utterly unworthy of dignified considerations. Indeed. But there was one movie that changed all that for the him. The Birth of a Nation changed all. D.W. Yeah. Griffith, once that uh, Wallace's son saw that, he realized that uh, there might be something uh, to turning Ben-Hur into uh, a movie. And uh, MGM uh, was able to get the rights from uh, Claw and Erlanger and the uh, Wallace estate. So a spectacle. In 1925, yeah. there's this uh, spectacular uh, silent film uh, version of uh, Ben-Hur with uh, Francis Bushman and Ramon Navarro, uh, the two actors playing uh, Masala and, and Ben-Hur. Uh, there's this classic uh, filming of the chariot race. Really impressive uh, scenes of the uh, uh, sea battle with the pirates and, and the Roman ships as well. And there's this always this controversy. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the chariot race. Was anyone killed? Well, the stuntmen were. There were a lot of horses mm-hmm. uh, killed. This is before there were any societies for prevention of cruelty to animals. Uh, but in the sea battle, there's always the rumors that uh, some extras actually drowned because they couldn't swim and were, didn't know that the ship would be rammed like it was and uh, that, uh, you know, three sets of clothes were left behind at the end of the day. Uh, that the extras didn't come back to change out of their costumes. And uh, then I read something that later on, uh, there three extras dressed in these costumes from the film came back uh, wanting their clothes and to be paid for that day. So you really don't know if they actually died in that sea battle or not. We also learn about how much money there was in the licensing of these uh, performances. I know that Henry asked for a million dollars in rights. Mm-hmm. He didn't get that. Six hundred thousand dollars, though, was in 1925. 1925 was <laughs> not bad for the time period. And I also think about the merchandising. Maybe today we think of uh, George Lucas putting out Star Wars figures. Mm-hmm. Ben Hur was a merchandising juggernaut. I would Insurance say. Insurance companies named after it. Uh, products, you know, that were named Ben Hur. Um, it was really a cultural phenomenon at the time. And then I know that uh, they say the 1925 version is the most expensive silent film ever made. Um, also, very truer to the uh, book itself than the 1959 version. So, and. Um, a lot of stars. Uh, I was reading about uh, apparently uh, MGM made it a holiday or... or right. Uh, I think Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, uh, I don't know if it's Douglas Fairbanks Sr. or Jr., mm-hmm. were actually extras in the crowd singing at the chariot race. And so mm-hmm. uh, all of Hollywood seemed to be uh, excited uh, about this uh, movie version of Ben-Hur. And then we come to the 1959 version that I think most people are familiar with. Um, if you mention Ben-Hur today, most people think Charles and Heston because mm-hmm, they've mm-hmm. seen that film. And unfortunately, I think um, Lou Wallace's name has been lost because of the overwhelming success of that movie and its continued influence uh, because you see it on television all the time. And it was a a massive success for MGM winning 11 Academy Awards, which was a record not matched until Titanic got 11 awards in 1998. So, And then Lord of the Rings. So it's one of the the only three films to win that many. I know that uh, for popular reference, again, I mentioned Star Wars earlier. There's a a theory or that the pod race in the Star Wars movies was taken. That's right, based on the famous chariot race with uh, from Ben Hur, from uh, Charlton Heston and uh, Stephen Boyd, and uh, yes, Um, that's the Phantom Menace. Yes, pod race. so as we reflect on, on this man, what we've been talking about over the last hour is just this amazing collection of, of achievements that seemed like he was uh, 
confident, maybe stubborn, but never gave up. Why is it important to tell Lou Wallace's story today? I think it's because he touches on all sorts of uh, aspects of uh, American history uh, that we need to remember uh, early pioneer days, uh, the law, politics, uh, writing, um, the Civil War, of course, his relationships with uh, Abraham Lincoln, Grant, and the other famous generals of that time. And he just had such a cultural influence uh, on American history through his writing uh, of Ben-Hur. And he's someone who needs to be uh, remembered and read. Uh, I still say that his uh, autobiography is ranks right up there with General Grant's uh, memoirs, which, of course, are better known today. Uh, but uh, Wallace's uh, autobiography is just as uh, good as Grant's and a little better written in some spots. <laughs> Very well written, I know, in reading Ben-Hur, the way he describes the dromedary, the camels, and the wise mm -hmm. men. Uh, it's not a writing style that is done today. You, no. yeah, he, you couldn't see it, so he had to describe every single detail. But Lew Wallace always found his way back to back Indiana. Home to Crawfordsville <laughs> and was very um, interested in encouraging others in Indiana as well. I know that both Meredith Nicholson and uh, Booth Tarkington uh, were encouraged in their own writing career because Wallace was a big presence in Indianapolis where, where they lived. And he walked down the street. People recognized him, knew who he was. And that uh, Wallace, you know, encouraged them to become writers but said, you know, Still, a lot of families would rather have a thief in their family than a writer, so just beware of that. And, uh, but they were very inspired by his example. How did Lou Wallace die? He had stomach cancer, and okay. he died at age 77 in 1905 mm -hmm. and um, kind of uh, faded away at the end, but uh, said he was ready to meet his maker finally. Mm -hmm. But he lives on he lives in the on. U.S. Capitol. Right, in Statuary Hall. He's the only writer featured in Statuary Hall. Of course, he's also a Civil War general. Each state can have two statues, mm -hmm. and Indiana has two Civil War figures, Oliver P. Morton, the Civil War governor from Indiana, and Lou Wallace, the, the general and writer and diplomat. Well, Ray, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I've been speaking with Lou Wallace scholar Ray E. Boomhauer, and thank you for listening to WFIU and Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.